Hello, this is Finding Human and I'm Sue Jackson and it's really good to be back today. I've been away and Craig, it's good to see you. And I have as my guest today Rene Pozniak, Holocaust educator, who has just returned from a March of the Living uh, tour that she took, and we'll be talking about that. Our um, our actual heading today is the power of the crowd or gatherings. There is a poem by Mahatma, uh, not Mahatma Gandhi, by Martin Luther King Jr., which says, "If you can't fly, then run." If you can't run, then walk. If you can't walk, then crawl. Whatever you do, you have to keep moving forward. Beautiful. And I think for you, Ren, coming back today from March of the Living, uh, that you've just returned from, you actually saw a mass of crowds moving. I have just returned from Jerusalem and celebrating with the Mizrahi group the jubilee year, the 50th year of um, the unification of Jerusalem and the atmosphere was electric. It was so incredible. But there are many sides to a march and to gatherings. There's the us versus the you. So if you're in a a large uh, gathering or a march, there are always the outsiders looking in and they are are definitely um, kept as the out group while the in-group uh, go on. How do you feel about that? Um, that's a very important dynamic on uh, an occasion like the March of the Living because everything is done as a group. So the group gets broken down. So we start off with a very micro group, which is leaving here from South Africa. So you have a Johannesburg group of kids and you'll have a group of students coming from Cape Town and a, and a smaller group coming from Durban. They, in a very micro level, know each other and they bonded already. Once we leave, and uh, even though they've been together on Facebook and WhatsApp groups, they, they haven't physically been together. Once we get there, we start bonding this group and it now becomes a South African group, a South African family. We are only on one bus So we are very united and we keep together all the time. But then when we get to the actual march, leaving from Auschwitz to Birkenau, you suddenly become part of a big, big global macro group. And I think this is a fascinating thing to be with. I think it gives a real sense of occasion to the march. I've often wondered if we just went at some other time of the year, just the South African group, how that would impact. And I really do believe that the the group – the electrifying atmosphere that you speak about is what carries this to another level. So I'm very in favor, and I think it's got a time and a place, for these big groups. Now, Durkheim, who was a, a, a French a socialist, at least um, uh, social science, he was involved in social science, he spoke about the importance of crowd emotionality and he coined the phrase effervescence to describe it. Um, And he said that our need to belong, to be recognized as being part of something bigger than ourselves is great. So what you're saying actually agrees with what he talks about. He also talks, as I said, about this effervescence effect. Did you, do you find that there? Yes, I, I think it's beautifully put. 
Um, I always believe that the March of the Living is an incredible opportunity, particularly for us South Africans coming from the tip of Africa here, because our interaction with Jews from all over the world is relatively limited. So to go there and be part of uh, delegations from 45 countries is something that our kids just can't get over. And I think it makes them understand and feel that they really are part of something much bigger than they ever imagined. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that that for the experience, but long term for a sense of Jewish identity is critical. Well, that's funny enough. That's one of the things he does say. By the way, I, he was a, a French sociologist, and along with Karl Marx and Max Weber, he was one of the architects of modern social science. And he discussed the influence on collective emotion and national identification. Very much so. So with the, with this large group, with your smaller macro group, micro group, joining the macro group, how do you actually prepare them? It's hard to because nothing can really prepare you for arriving in Auschwitz and seeing these thousands and thousands of kids speaking to 45 different languages. So I think initially there's this wow factor, and then as they get more comfortable and settle into it, I think it's something that they embrace. They are very embraced by the other groups who are fascinated by South Africans. Uh, they want they want our caps, they want our jerseys, they want everything that we're wearing. What is it that fascinates them? I think a, a perception. I think that they, when they hear there's a South African group coming, I don't know if they know what to expect. Uh. I think maybe they're amazed that we're white when we get off the bus, but that we're Jewish. And I might add very Jewish. Mm-hmm. Um, is something absolutely fascinating to them. They really make a point of coming to us. So, and they want all our national symbols. They, they want everything, anything South African. They've often wanted some of our gorgeous girls, <laughs> <laughs> which we, we keep under lock and key. Um, but it, it's a very interesting dynamic. So going in, when you're on the bus going towards the march at Auschwitz, is there anything that you do to prepare the group? So, Sue, there's, there's a very interesting thing that's happened, and that is I started going on this march in 1994, the year that South Africa became independent. And we all um, lined up in Auschwitz. We were asked to march in silence. They blew a shofar, and we started to march. And if you can believe that thousands and thousands of Jews actually did keep quiet, and we marched the three kilometers from Auschwitz to Birkenau, uh, in silence, and it, it was the most powerful um, experience I've ever had. Sadly, as the years have gone by, the decorum has degenerated quite a bit. If you are towards the front, where the adults are, where the, the VIPs, where Rabbi Lau is, where the RDF are. Some the, of the survivors. Some of the survivors, you know, VIP people. Uh, the, 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 the decorum is very good. As you move further back, and this is a very, very long line, um, it gets a little bit more out of control. So there, there was some objection to this, and we had a seminar in Mexico City a couple of years ago under the auspices of March of the Living to try and decide whether we could impose some sort of you know, obligatory decorum. And it was a fascinating experience. There I was in a group with the group leaders from all the delegations. And the, the South Africans were quite vociferous in that we believed that this was a memorialization, 
this march to the souls of six million people and that it should be done quietly and with respect and equally vociferous in half the hall were particularly south americans panamanians argentinians, argentinians <laughs> who were quite adamant that this for them was a celebration of survival mm-hmm. that they had survived and they wanted to show Hitler that we were going to come back year after year, stronger than ever, and they were not going to be quiet. And March of the Living, as an organization, found it impossible to actually impose how you should behave. So a request was made, if you want to sing and dance, please keep it in your group and don't interfere with the others. So what I do in our drive towards Auschwitz on the day of the march is I explain to the, the students that they are going to witness varying types of behavior as a group behavior and that this was our march this was their march and that they as a group could decide how they wanted to march and i told them that we had a choice to do it in silence or we could sing and dance as was this very strong feeling on the other side of the world and I'm very happy to say that so you gave them the choice. I absolutely gave them the choice if there's one thing I've learned about adolescence if you get them to buy into something because they think they made the decision, they're going to do it. And I'm, I'm happy to say that every year, sometimes it's been a little bit closer than others, the decision on the bus by vote has been that we do it in silence. Ren, that's, that's uh, fantastic that you gave them the choice. I now have one of your students who went with you on the March of the Living this year, Ross Novitz who is going to be talking about his experience Wonderful. of the march. Uh, he's a grade 11 student pupil at King David Linksfield, and he brought tears to my eyes when I received this. March of the Living, 2017. Having been to Poland as a member of the South African March of the Living Youth Delegation, I bear witness. Having stood where millions of lives were lost, where the atrocities of complete inhumanity and destruction occurred and seen only the remains of what was once pure horror and hatred, I bear witness. But most importantly, I bear witness to the thousands of living Jews and a few non-Jews that all together marched in unity and did so in order to remember. Being a part of the South African delegation, we were one of the smallest, as there were roughly 50 of us. However, in comparison to some of the other delegations, some that consisted of hundreds, it really did emphasize that sense of unity, as we got to experience firsthand what it was like to be a part of something bigger. The march itself was from Auschwitz I to Birkenau. And once arriving, I truly was overwhelmed. I stopped myself in between the train tracks and for some reason decided to dive in Mincha. The emotions were truly overwhelming and it really is hard to put into words what was going through my mind at that stage. But what I remember clearly is hearing all the different languages that were spoken as people would pass me. Looking back at it now, it really just does emphasize the miracle that I was able to walk out of Auschwitz, that the thousands of us were able to walk out of Auschwitz, 
if you've been there, you would know just how big it actually is. And I think that's what uh, that's what makes it so frightening. And having seen the thousands of people stand there, for me, it really does make it that much more of a miracle. The trip really would not be what it is if we didn't go to Israel for a week afterwards. I'd been previously on holidays and the year before on a youth program to tour. But this time, I arrived with a new sense of responsibility and an obligation to be happy and proud of the state of Israel. In our town there, we did another march, this time from Safra Square to the Kotel. This march was one big celebration, and we, as a South African youth delegation, truly did make the most of it. When I got to the Kotel, instead of running up to it like I had done the previous Shabbos for Kabbalat Shabbat, I took a step back, and while looking up at it, a true sense of appreciation and gratitude fulfilled me. I realized just how truly lucky and privileged we actually are. As a free Jew, I am able to stop next to the tracks in Auschwitz and Davin Mincha. As a free Jew, I am able to visit the Kotel when I please. As a free Jew, I put my tefillin on every morning here in South Africa. And that, all of that, in itself, is a miracle. I will forever struggle to conceptualize the atrocities of the Holocaust, just because of how irrational it actually is. But having had this learning experience, I truly did learn things and experience things that I wouldn't have been able to in a classroom. And because I've learned all these things, and because I've had this experience, it is now up to me to teach and to pass it on to as many people as I can. And just like it is up to me, it is up to all those part of the South African delegation, all of those that were part of the entire March of the Living, as well as every single person that is listening to this. Because if we don't, then who will? My name is Ross Novitz, and I was a part of the South African March of the Living Youth Delegation 2017. From talk to music, from Johannesburg to Israel, from sport to business, this is 101.9 High FM. Hello, this is Finding Human. I am Sue Jackson, and my guest today is Rene Posniak. You have just listened to um, a recording by Ross Novitz on his uh, experience on the March of the Living. Thank you so much, Ross. Ross is a very good friend of my grandson, uh, Joshua's, and I'm just incredibly proud of, of how you presented that. Thank you, Ross. Ren, I saw you became very emotional listening. Well, very emotional because that is the best of what you can uh, hope for as a response to the experience that he's just had. And it's I am emotional about it because I'm passionate about this program. I'm passionate about um, the youth being educated to remember and to carry the message forward. And listening to Ross, um, he did that. He is an exceptional student, and it was a privilege to have him with us, really. Thank you for that. Um, uh, it was a surprise for you, <laughs> Ray. Yes. I hadn't told you about it. You can WhatsApp us on 062-148-2374 or SMS us on 
0891-104-19. Now, you know, um, I was talking to Ingrid Seif yesterday and she, she had been with me on the Mizrahi tour to, in Israel. And just before then, she had been on a tour to Lithuania, which was a much smaller tour. And she said that she found that on the smaller tour, perhaps it's what you're talking about also with the March of the Living, um, there was more of a bonding and the people had more of an impact on one another. Whereas at the bigger crowd, the Mizrahi crowd who came from all around the world, we we were inclined to be in cliques, mm. cliques of those who knew one another. Definitely. So I think that's also something to be aware of in marches. Yes. I think that's one of the challenges and something that we're trying to address now is that the March of the Living is definitely more entrenched now in South Africa and more and more kids are wanting to go. Um, we don't really have the resources to take lots and lots and lots of buses, but there's also this exactly what you're saying. There's something very special about being one bus mm. because you become a family 24-7 for the good times we laugh together and the, the times when we're overwhelmed, maybe some crying or support or a hug is happening and there's this, this wonderful camaraderie. I don't know if that's achievable in a bigger group. Mm. So the challenge for us is do we become more selective and take less, we just take a bus full, or do we give the opportunity to as many people as possible and have to expand the group? It's something, we, we, exactly what you've said, what Ingrid told you, is very true. And I saw it definitely myself now, that the one time that I actually broke from our group, um, they were all going on to the hotel and I was unable to go and uh, and walk through Jerusalem, uh, the old city. So there was a, a second option, which was to go up to one of the hotels and to listen to two women who were giving talks. And I was the only one from from our group who actually went up there on my own. And I played with the idea of whether I should go or not. And actually, I'm so pleased I did because, in a way, I broke from the clique. And when I got there, there was a Canadian woman who came up to introduce me to herself to me. And then she called her friend. And then another man arrived, and he was from Australia, and he introduced himself. So in a way, I got um, to meet other people, which I wouldn't have. But the opportunity to network, is mm. if you were cloistered by your own group, that would never have happened. No, and yet yes. there is there is a sense of security in your own Definitely. group that they care for you. Yes. You know, where yes. are you? Are you okay? And yes. what have you. Um, you know, there, uh, there's such a thing as, as walking. You said about how the groups really, one, other groups wanted all our symbols and our national um, emblems and what have you. I remember when I went on the March of the Living with you, Ren, we were, I think it was the Argentinians behind us, and they were certainly in a celebratory mood. And we're bargaining with us for everything, for every little pin that we might have had with a South African yes. flag on or whatever. And uh, you gave very strict instructions for our students not to sell anything, that this march was not a bargaining place. <laughs> <laughs> they could do it at another time. Do you exactly. remember that? I, I, still, I still give those strict instructions. Mm -hmm. uh, not always adhere to. It's very tempting. It is very tempting, especially yes. with Iran being as it is. <laughs> you know, um, and this need to belong is, is quite amazing. Um, I saw it in Hebron. The, now on, on the Mizrahi tour, where um, 
there was a marching down the streets of Hebron and dancing with IDF members, and and yet um, because I was not part of the march, you know, I had been injured, so I was watching from the sidelines. It's amazing what you can pick up from the sidelines. I I saw the us versus the other. And I was pretty torn, I must admit. Um, and I think coming from South Africa, especially, we, sure. we are. But it was at the same time quite uh, emotional to see the flags that were, that were flying. And, you know, after motivational, uh, I mean, national catastrophes, yes, especially, yes. and after each trauma, more flags come out. What I noticed in Israel is that literally from every second balcony, there's a flag flying. And uh, in America, after um, 9-11, the same happened apparently with the flags, yeah. national symbols really taking on importance. So it's very interesting because um, there's been a request by March of the Living in the march in Auschwitz. Mm -hmm. That we they they give each delegation Israeli flags, and they would like to see everybody march as some as Jews, okay, not South African, Croatian, whatever. Um, so they would like us all to march with the Israeli flag, and the Israel march, as Ross said, from Safra Square to the Kotel, has a completely different tone. Mm. And there, everybody brings out their national flags because we are—it's a given. We are all Jews. We all here in Israel. This is what we are. But we all coming from different places, representing different identities and nationalities. So it's very interesting to see the difference there. You know, first the unified. Identity mm. as a Jew, mm. and then the one is your you you are coming from where you're coming. So and the common is the Jew, yes. but you have your own culture and your own symbols. And I think that's incredibly unifying. Quite honestly, I was in Jerusalem now to watch the flag march uh, from uh, the uh, from Jerusalem itself, the new city, to the Kotel, and uh, it was the most amazing thing to see. Prams with, you know, triplets, twins, uh, people dressed, some of them covered up very well, very obviously more religious, others in t cutaway t-shirts, It was, but everyone in this unbelievable celebratory mood and everyone, even the prams, even the little carry prams, you know, those, yes. those carry chairs with flags flying Wonderful. from them. Wonderful. It was the most Unbelievable thing to watch I actually stood outside the Mamilla Mall And I was uh, taking videos of it And I, I myself felt that effervescence of that crowd The emotion of it Even though I wasn't marching with them And then again I saw what music did Sure And uh, because their vans were following the march With music blaring forth There was uh, had Tikva, uh, Hallelujah, um, uh, Shwekis, We Are a Miracle, you know, all of those. And it was incredibly exciting. Sounds what do you What do you feel about music and a march? Oh, absolutely. I, um, one year we went to the Krakow Shul the night before the march. It was snowing. We got a message on our bus to say, anybody that's around, come and join and I got there, and there were already a lot of delegations, and people were speaking all different languages. And this was before the march. We had just got to Poland, and I thought, I don't know if this is going to work. 
everybody speaking a different language, like the Tower of Babel. And on the, on, by the Aron Kodesh were standing some young kids who had diaries. And they were diaries that had been found in the camps. Yes. They started reading extracts in their own dialect. And even though you couldn't understand the exact words, there was no doubt about what these diaries were saying. But I looked up and people had draped Israeli flags from the women's section hanging down just spontaneously. And then after the, the, the students had finished reading, Somebody started to sing Anima Min mm, mm. in the distance. And suddenly everybody started to sing the same song. Mm. And all the different dialects made no difference. We were all here for the same purpose, for the same reason. And we all felt this incredible, you say the effervescent, that's, that's the only way I can describe it. It's it was, Durkham's words. Yes, <laughs> which I'm going to adopt because I think it's, very, it's beautifully put. But yes, the music... The song was so unifying and broke down all the barriers of these different cultures. It was uh, unbelievable. Uh, you know, um, the first night we were there, we were standing on top of Mamillion Mall and we were watching the celebrations for Yom Yerushalayim. And because it, they had to be brought forward because of Donald Trump deciding to visit at the same time as all of us. <laughs> and uh, But I can assure you that the crowds were not going to let that um, dampen their spirits <laughs> or, or keep them off the streets of Jerusalem at the time. Many streets had been closed, by the way. But um, anyway, uh, we were on the top of the Mamila Mall looking down. And it was a privileged position that we were in, a few good friends uh, and us, and we watched the crowds beneath us walking towards and dancing and moving and moving and moving and um, towards the hotel. It was the most amazing thing to watch. Um, They were going through um, Jaffa, Jaffa Gate and... Some were dancing, some were singing, some had flags flying. I mean, definitely the symbols were all out there. Very much. Even the shofar was being blown. (laughs) So, you know, it was also important. And watching, as we did from a distance, we then, they had on an incredible light show and uh, and a show with drones. Wow. The drones spoke to each other. Wow. We thought they were being, you know, um, directed from the ground. They weren't. They were actually speaking to each other. And in the sky, they, on the, they were making different symbols. The shofar, uh, um, uh, they were Yisrael. Wow. Um, Israeli Robert. technology, Sue. Oh, it was amazing. <laughs> but um, music there was blaring Very forth important. and played a huge, huge, huge role. role. Just uh, uh, just another point, when, when we're lining up in Auschwitz before we actually start the march, um, kids get together and start singing some of the current Israeli songs. And others just, the, the group just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. People are drawn to the music. Yeah. A very, very great barrier breaker. It really is. And, you know, I was, I was reading about um, the march on Washington in, uh, with uh, 
when uh, Martin Luther King Jr. gave his speech, I Have a Dream. And in that, it mentioned a lot about the the music. And funny enough, one of the things um, that was quite interesting was that uh, someone said, and they, I quote, it was difficult getting to the march. We didn't know what to expect. People were afraid. Sitting across we, uh, fr- from me was a black preacher with a white collar. We talked. Every now and then, people on the bus sang, Oh, Freedom. And we shall overcome. Wow. And it broke the atmosphere. Um, when um, Martin Luther King spoke, he spoke at the end. And um, Mah- Mahalia Jackson, who's a very well-known gospel, a legendary gospel singer, uh, said, Tell them about the dream, Martin. And Martin Luther King departed from his prepared text, I never knew this, oh. for a, a, a sort of partly improvised theme of I Have a Dream. Oh, wow. Isn't that amazing? amazing? And then it, of course, became known as I Have a Dream speech and was carried live on TV and it is still quoted today. But the singers who sang were also Joan Byers and she sang We Shall Overcome, yes. Bob Dylan, Oh Freedom, and Peter, Paul and Mary sang If I Had a Hammer. <laughs> and Dylan's blowing in the wind. You know, they are all relevant to absolutely. today. And you can absolutely. imagine. Uh, they, they the message went, is the same. Absolutely. And then there was another quote by, by people saying how the music unified them. Absolutely. Um, are we going to break for another advert? And then you're going to be hearing Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs talking about Jerusalem. There has never been a love story like it. In all of history, the love of this people for that city. Jerusalem is mentioned something like 660 times in Tanakh. And even though the temple was destroyed twice, and even though the city has been besieged 23 times and captured and reconquered 44 times, Jews never ceased to pray for Jerusalem, about Jerusalem, and facing Jerusalem. Somehow, it was where every Jewish prayer met and ascended to heaven. And there's been nothing like it. Other cities, other faiths may hold Jerusalem holy, but they have holier places. Rome, Constantinople, Mecca, Medina. Jews only had this one city. A tiny city, but somehow it was the place, said Maimonides, from which the divine presence was never exiled. In those critical and tense weeks before the Six-Day War, I was just coming near the end of my first undergraduate year at Cambridge University. And for the three weeks beforehand, we all felt that um, something terrible was going to happen. After all, the troops were massed on the Egyptian and Syrian borders. And all of us, all of my generation born after the Holocaust, feared that we were about to witness a second Holocaust. All the Jewish students, vast numbers of them, turned up in the little shul in Thompson's Lane to to pray. I've never seen so many people there before or since. The atmosphere was absolutely intense. And for me, it was life-changing. As soon as we saw the paratroopers, as soon as we heard the words, I knew I had to go there and see it for myself. And uh, I went there, and looking down, from Harad Sofim, from Mount Scopus, down on the old city. 
I suddenly realized that I was standing at the very place that the Mishnah and Gemara talk about at the end of Makot, when Rabbi Akiva and three of his rabbinical colleagues are standing on Harad Sufim, looking down on the ruins of the temple, and the other rabbis are weeping, and Rabbi Akiva is smiling. And he says, why are you weeping? And they say, look, the Holy of Holies, and it's, it's ruins, a fox is walking through there. The place that only the holiest man, the high priest, could enter only on the holiest day, and now it's ruins. Of course we're weeping. Why are you not weeping? And Rabbi Akiva said, because there were two prophets who gave prophecies. One, Micha, saw the city in its destruction, and another one, Zechariah, saw it rebuilt. And so it was a place where where old men and women would sit at peace in the streets of Jerusalem and the streets would be filled with the sounds of children playing. So if I have seen the fulfillment of the prophecy of destruction, am I not convinced that there will one day come true the prophecy of rebuilding and restoration? And as I stood where Rabbi Akiva stood 2,000 years earlier, I said to myself, if he had only known how long it would take, would he still have believed? And then I suddenly realized, of course he would still have believed. Because Jews would never give up hope of Jerusalem. We never allowed it to escape our minds. In any of our prayers, at our weddings, we remember Jerusalem. Every time we comfort mourners, we say, You know, Jews were a circumference whose center was Jerusalem. And I suddenly realized that uh, people that could never forget this holy city would one day come back. And as I stood there, soon after the Six-Day War, I suddenly realized that faith brought back Jews to Jerusalem and will one day rebuild its ruins. That is the most powerful testimony of faith I know. What's special about Jerusalem today is, despite all the tensions which are real, nonetheless, it's a place, the Holy of Holies, still to Jews. But also on the Temple Mount are two mosques. It's a place of prayer for Muslims. There in the old city are some of the holiest churches in the whole of Christendom. So it is, nonetheless, a city of peace. One of the very few places in the Middle East, one of the very few places in the world. Holy to three distinct faiths where those faiths pray together in freedom and in peace. And that's come only under Israeli rule in the last 50 years. Somebody once said about Israel, and you could certainly say this about Jerusalem, that it's not that long and it's not that wide, but it's very deep. So Jerusalem is very deep. And somehow within its relatively narrow confines, it contains, in Walt Whitman's phrase, multitudes. The other incredible thing about Jerusalem is that somehow magic happens with our sense of time. So, for instance, the walls of Jerusalem were destroyed by every conqueror and then rebuilt using the stones that had the previous walls. So, if you look at the stones of the walls around Jerusalem, 
They come from all the eras, somehow past and present, the old and the new are all jumbled together. And then you think of this city, the oldest of the old, and yet Time magazine a couple of years ago listed Jerusalem as one of the top five in the world, which is an emerging center of high tech. So it's the oldest of the old, and it's the newest of the new. It is the living symbol of what Theodore Herzl titled his book about the return to Zion, Old Neuland, the old new land, the old new city for the old and renewed people. The best part of your day. At the heart of your community. All the talk. All the music. All the news. Hi, FM. Hello, this is uh, Sue Jackson on Finding Human, and my guest today is Rene Posniak. Ren, you know, we were talking about the different types of, of, of crowds and marches, and there's a certain gathering after um, a, a national catastrophe. For instance, uh, Manchester and what's happened in London with, with the, the, those tragedies now, um, where people have come together for services, uh, world, worldwide service, I mean, a nationwide services, flowers, um, different rituals uh, and neighborhood gatherings. There's a high degree of collective emotional involvement. Now, you have a story about Yad Vashem that I would like you to share with us. Um, yeah, I think that the, the discussion today probably needs to be balanced by the fact that while there's lots of pluses and comfort and security in a group, a group sometimes is negative. Um, and I think social media is enhancing this, etc. There was a story that was told to me that in the 70s, um, there's an area called Skokie, Illinois, in Chicago, where um, for whatever reason, a lot of um, Holocaust survivors had gone to live. And in the 70s, there was a, a, there was a, a young neo-Nazi group that had risen there as well. And they wanted to celebrate Hitler's birthday, which is in April, to commemorate Hitler. And they wanted to use full Nazi regalia, the swastikas and the boots and the hats, and, and march down the main street. When this Holocaust survivor group heard about it, they were very concerned and asked that it please be stopped because they didn't feel emotionally they would want to see this again. And the first amendment to the American Constitution gives everybody freedom of speech. So they they said that, you know, due to their freedom of speech, they wanted to do this, their freedom of action, whatever. To cut a long story short, it eventually landed up in the Supreme Court of the United States. And the end result was that they were allowed to march down a side street, not the main street, so that those who wanted to avoid it could. Yad Vashem watched this with horror. They couldn't believe that in the greatest democracy of the world, with a hindsight of everything that the Holocaust had shown us, that people would so willingly want to identify with Hitler. So they contacted the leader of this neo-Nazi group. He was a young man in his 20s and asked if they could bring him to Israel and talk to him. And he said, fine. They flew him there. They wound and down him. And Holocaust educators interviewed him. And basically they asked him, does he remember at what point he became a neo-Nazi? And he said, yes, he remembered very clearly that he had been watching one of these Hitler rallies that often came on TV. Hitler was a very charismatic speaker. He spoke in German, so there were always subtitles, and he said he never bothered to read it. This time he happened to be ill. He was in bed. He was bored. One of these rallies came on, and he started to read it. And he was so mesmerized by what Hitler said 
that the survival of the fittest, that whole concept mm. that stronger nations had the right. If you go into nature, you'll see that the big animals feed off the little animals, and that's how it was meant to be. And so he went on his own journey, and he read Mein Kampf. He read everything that Hitler had written and speeches, and he became a neo-Nazi. Mm. And they asked him, do you remember what the movie was that you were watching? And he remembered the title. They went to look it up. And it was a movie that had been produced by B'nai Brett to educate people about the Holocaust, mm. um, a Jewish group. And what had happened is that it had backfired and created a neo-Nazi. So they felt that this needed to be further investigated. They took a 100 people who had never, ever personally met a Jew, gave them a values clarification test to test their level of anti-Semitism. They then put them through a course on the Holocaust with survivors and, and real life, te- real life footage. And, and afterwards they gave them the same test. And in almost 80% of the people, their level of anti-Semitism had increased. Good heavens. And Yad Vashem said, how is it possible with everything we've shown you? And the most common answer that was given is that if so many people hated the Jews to such an extent, there must've been a reason. Wow. So that is a group mentality. That is how stereotypes and, and the emotionality of exactly. a group. I'm sorry, Ren, we've got to break for an uh, advert. Stay relevant and up to date. This is 101.9 High FM. Hello, this is Finding Human. I'm Sue Jackson, and my guest today, my special guest, is my very good friend, Rene Posniak. Ren, that's quite amazing how that backfired, that the story you've just told. So basically what Yad Vashem understood is that Holocaust education actually needs to be quite specialized, what has the potential to backfire. Um, but they also came to understand the power of a group. Mm-hmm. Stereotypes are group uh, driven. Th- driven, absolutely. And, and the emotions of the yes. group. You know that um, uh, I see that our time is, is running. But So I wanted to actually mention Nelson Mandela because he believed he used Sport to heal a nation. And Francois Pina, who was the, the winner, winning captain in the World Cup in 1998, if you remember it, yes. said, when the whistle blew, South Africa changed forever. Um, now, Nelson Mandela, I still remember him going onto the field wearing a Springbok rugby jersey and a cap. And uh, number six, was it? I think it was six. Six, yeah. And, um, and, you know, there's a a book that was written about it uh, called uh, Playing the Enemy uh, and How It Made a Nation, uh, the game that made a nation. And it was adapted to a film called Invictus. Correct. Um, Now, the the national identity of those who experienced that rugby gathering um, was in the collectiving experience was incredibly strong, and they did some research afterwards into the Zulu phrase Ubuntu, and um, which is a, the African word, uh, which the, it's an ancient African word, by the way, meaning humanity to others. But it also means I am what I am because of who we all are. Absolutely. A person is a person through other people. Yes. So once again, I can say our need to belong, to be recognized as being some part of something bigger than ourselves, a, sh- a social sharing after an event also helps to boost a community 
and a country beyond the event, which is what we definitely saw at that World Rugby oh, Cup. absolutely. But, you know, the positive emotional arousal uh, was uh, also often a, um, a, a occurs, it's, that's what it's called, after national uh, catastrophes, collective emotions, which can lead to sometimes more fear, but it can also lead to cohesion and solidarity. And I don't know if you watch CNN. Sure. But uh, yesterday in Russia, you saw students yes. taking yes. to the streets, and, oh, my word, they really became a cohesive group determined not to give in to the, to the police force. Yes. It's going to be very interesting to see how that plays out. Um, this week, we are, we, we are, we have, um, uh, our Friday, the 16th of June, um, and it's, it's when the, the Black Student Union, the SSRC, began the peaceful march um, and to, to actually talk about their, uh, their, their problems with the schooling and what have you. And I would like to just <coughs> end by saying that uh, Titsi Mashinini, I think, climbed onto a tractor and addressed the crowd and said, Brothers and sisters, I appeal to you to keep calm and cool. We have just received a report that the police are coming. Don't taunt them. Don't do anything to them. Be cool and calm. We are not fighting. Well, we know how that ended in a massacre, and we certainly don't want that to ever happen again in our beautiful country and, if possible, in our world. Thank you so much, Wren. Craig is telling me we have to end now, and we've actually got a lot still to, to say, but would you like to just end by saying anything? Well, first of all, I want to thank you for the opportunity. I love being with you and talking with you. You seem to bring out the best in me. Um, I think the topic is very relevant. I think with social media today and all the, pre the group pressure on our kids, is, uh, we, shouldn't, uh, we shouldn't underestimate how negative that is and how powerful it is. Thank you, Ren, and thank you, Craig.